Luke chapter 7, we are back in the never-ending series of Luke. This is the 20th (laughs) sermon, believe it or not. And uh, hoping to cover two little stories at the start of chapter 7 today. Uh, We'll keep an eye on time and if if time's beaten us, we'll split it and do the second one next week. We'll look at the authority and the compassion of Jesus in these verses. So, Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was ill and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man, deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I, will, I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, Luke includes this, and Luke stresses something that Matthew doesn't stress. Matthew's got a really similar story, probably the same account, but Luke pushes the fact that this guy is a centurion, because Luke is writing his gospel with a Gentile audience in mind who will read his gospel, and uh, therefore he stresses that, that the guy is a Gentile, he's a Roman, he's a centurion, and also he stresses the fact that the, this Roman got on well with the Jews. This Gentile had a good relationship with the Jewish leaders. And one of the things, you know, just to, this is not the main takeaway from this passage, but one of the things to, to, to note here is that this guy was really wealthy. He was not a follower of Jesus or a member of the people of God. He was a Roman centurion, but he was also a good spot, you know. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I I can be slightly uh, prejudiced, I guess. I have to check myself now and again where I will assume that a certain type of person maybe is not a particularly nice person. And that's a really bad attitude to have and I have to keep on checking myself on it. This guy's really, really wealthy. Sometimes when you encounter someone who's really wealthy, you think, I wonder who you have trampled on to get your wealth. But the guy's really generous. And I know a lot of really wealthy people who are also incredibly generous people. So let's not just default to labeling somebody really wealthy, really generous, and also really wealthy. He hasn't trampled on people. He's got a servant who he owns like a piece of property, and he's really concerned. He says that he values the servant highly. He highly esteems him. He loves him, and he wants to see the guy healed. So let's not assume that because somebody is a centurion and is wealthy that therefore he's a horrible person. 
You're not likely to encounter many centurions, but you will probably encounter plenty of wealthy people who are also extremely generous and extremely caring people. And I want you to note, first of all, then, how religion approaches God. And just in case, because it's been a while, but I did emphasize this earlier on in Luke. When I'm talking about religion, do not hear me say tradition, because that's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about religion, I'm not talking about any denomination. I am not talking about whether, you know, what clothes people wear in church, what type of seats they sit on, what type of songs they sing. That is not what I mean by religion. Those are traditions that are valued, that we should be thankful for. People who have carried the baton faithfully for a long time. That is, when when I go hard against religion, I'm not going hard against that. I'm thankful for that, okay? Religion is trying to approach God and please God based on your own merits. What you do, what you achieve, who you are, trying to impress God with stuff that you've done. Works. Yeah, that's religion. And therefore, religion can creep into any heart of any Christian. And it can creep into any church. It's got nothing to do with how contemporary the music might be or the decor or anything like that. Religion can very easily creep in where we start thinking we have impressed God with what we've done. And that's how the Jews approach Jesus on behalf of this man. Now, I'll point out later, I don't think he told them to. He just told them to to plead earnestly with him. He told them to go to to Jesus with a message to to come and heal his servant. We heater is on out there at that door, if anybody could switch it off, just because it's buzzing in the background. Um, Thank you. The... The Jews, though, they come to him and look at how their own thinking causes them to approach God. This man deserves to have you do this because he... They have within them this deeply entrenched mindset of, as we approach God, let us remind God of all of the good stuff that's been done by this guy so that God, therefore, will bless him. Now, I don't know about you, because you're all really good, but I find sometimes that can creep into me. I can find myself praying and adopting a posture of God. Look at all the things I've done. (laughs) And I have to check myself. That religious spirit can creep in. Think of the times I did this or I did that or I went here or I went there or I invested my money in this or or I gave my time to this. And it can very much creep in and it's a poisonous, poisonous way to think to try to approach God based on merits of what we've done. And religion will will crush you. It will really crush you. I'm sure you maybe have experienced or you maybe know of other people who have experienced frustration, disappointment, because they have done a whole lot of Christian activity, but they feel God hasn't showed up and honored what they have done. And a religious mindset can quickly creep in and get bitter and angry and disappointed with God because they're thinking, I did all this and you didn't show up and heal that person. I did all this and you didn't deal with that difficult situation that I had in work. Your approach to God as a child of God is based exactly on that. You are his child. He loves you. You need do nothing to come into his presence. 
you need achieve nothing, you need bring nothing, you don't, you don't have any merits, you don't have anything that you bring along and say, God, look what I've done, will you listen to me today? He is a loving, heavenly Father. He is full of grace and compassion. And be careful that you don't get that mindset because all of us at some stage in life, we invest a lot of time in church, church activity, church things. And when they don't bear fruit, it's very easy for the devil to creep in and create this religious mindset that says, God, I did this. Why are you not doing that? Be careful of that. Our relationship with God is not based on religion. It's not based on our merits. Look instead at how faith approaches God. The difference between religion. Religion says this man deserves to have you do something because he has done all these nice things. And he did do all those nice things and it's commendable. But that is the wrong mindset. The guy himself, as Jesus starts to approach the house, the guy, the centurion sends out some of his friends and says, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve. (laughs) That's the approach of faith. I did not consider myself worthy. When we approach God, we are in our own standing Naturally speaking, unworthy, but because of what Jesus has done, he has made us children who are welcomed into our Father's presence. And our worthiness depends on Jesus, not on ourselves. This guy knows that all of the good stuff that he has done for the Jewish people does not actually cause him to be deserving of God's blessing. And his message was simply, say the word down at the bottom. Say the word. That's all is required. And Jesus is amazed. Do you know you can amaze Jesus? Jesus is amazing, but it is possible to amaze him. (laughs) He's only amazed twice in the New Testament, to my knowledge. He's amazed here at the man's faith. The faith of the centurion. We'll talk about faith in a wee minute. He's amazed that this guy has faith that all it will take is a word from Jesus, that Jesus doesn't have to go, doesn't have to lay hands on him, doesn't have to pray over him or say anything in his presence, but a word, one word, one command, not one particular word if he just says the right word. What this centurion is saying is, if you just give the command, just like I do to my soldiers, and tell them what to do, if you give the word, he will be healed. So what is... Oh, sorry, the other time that that, that Jesus is amazed is actually at a lack of faith, ironically. In Mark chapter 6, he's in Nazareth and he can't do many great miracles there. And it says that he was amazed at their lack of faith. So faith can amaze him in a positive way and faith or lack of faith can also amaze him in a negative way. So what is is faith then? Thinking about this, I... Do you ever get these words in the Christian vocabulary that we bat about all the time, but if somebody just said, define that, (laughs) we might struggle a wee bit. How do you define faith? Uh, I teach science and scientists love definitions. They love just a wee sharp, snippy sentence that defines a word. How do you define faith? And it's difficult to define because it's used in different ways by different writers in the New Testament. Paul will write about faith sometimes as being our response to God. But sometimes when Paul writes faith in Christ, that can equally be translated the faithfulness of Christ. 
And it's a translation decision that puts faith in Christ in the English Bible instead of the faithfulness of Christ. But a lot of scholars believe the faithfulness of Christ would be a good way to translate it. Because we are benefiting from his faithfulness in showing us what God is like. And from his faithfulness in obeying the mission and the call of God, his faithfulness in laying down his life. So it's not, you know, different, because different writers use it in different ways, it's hard to just pin down, this is what faith is. This is what impressed Jesus on this occasion when he said, you've got great faith. It's hard to just define faith, but I'll try to give you a couple of things that I think are aspects of faith. One, it is belief. It's believing that God is who he says he is. God reveals himself through scripture. God reveals himself through Jesus and what we read about Jesus in scripture. That is the most perfect, complete revelation of God. And faith, to exercise faith, is to believe that God is who he says he is. Now that's not it, but that's part of it. And I think that's one of the things that the centurion did here. He believed that Jesus is who he said he was. So faith involves believing. It also involves trusting, which is just like a sort of a step further on from believing. Lots of people, if you ask them, do you believe in God? They will say yes, and they're not lying. They do believe in God. They believe there is a God. But have they entrusted their lives to him? Maybe not. Are they actively following Jesus? Maybe not. So trust is, a, is a, another aspect of faith that it's not just that I believe this, but I am entrusting my life to this God who has revealed himself. I believe he is who he says he is, and I am entrusting my life to him. I am placing my faith in him and in him alone. And then another aspect of it is, is faithfulness. That because of our belief in who God is, and are placing our trust in that, we then live faithfully. It affects how you live. A very little time for people who say they believe in God or that they are Christians, but it does not work itself out into how they live. Faithfulness then is we are faithfully living out what we believe. It affects how we act. In lots of different ways, maybe in, in how you use your time and how you use your money and, and various things like that. But I think primarily how our faith exhibits our, itself in our lives is how we treat other people. That's ultimately it. How do we treat others, both within the community of faith, the church, and outside it? If I believe that God is who he says he is and I've placed my trust in him, is that evident in how I treat others who are made in his image? So those are some fairly basic, I think, foundational understandings of, of, of what faith actually is. And I don't think we should quantify faith. Jesus talks here about the guy having great faith. And there are occasions in the Gospels where he talks about little faith. But I don't think he means us to create a scale, you know, a percentage. You know, it's Monday morning and I'm about 5% on the faith scale. It's Sunday and I'm in the high 80s because it's Sunday. I don't think he means us to quantify it, to put figures on it. I think Jesus is not, when he says great faith, I think he sees any faith as being great faith. 
And I think when he talks to the disciples about their lack of faith or little faith, I think he's effectively saying no faith. It's not so much how, about how much you have, it's whether you have faith and who that faith is in, as opposed to the magnitude of your faith. This guy's faith is great, and I think we can see the reason why it's great in how he approaches Jesus compared to how the Jews approach Jesus. The Jews just come to him in verse 4, and they start to plead with him and say, this man deserves your help. The guy himself in verse 6 sends his friends and starts off with the word Lord. The Jews don't use that. They don't approach Jesus and refer to him as Lord. Whenever they approach him in the Gospels, you will find them, find them calling him teacher or, or, or scribe. or, or, or they'll, they'll use rabbi. They'll use some term for him that gives respect, but they don't call him Lord. Whereas this guy calls him Lord. And I think the great faith that Jesus is seeing is that this guy knows who Jesus is. He maybe doesn't know everything about him. None of us ever will have a perfect, in this life, understanding of God and of Jesus. We will always marvel. There will always be more to to dive into and learn about him. But the great faith is that acknowledgement. You are, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you are Lord of heaven and earth. I believe you can heal this man with one word of command. That's great faith. The Jews are playing around with Jesus and they're coming and they're asking questions and they're trying to trip him up and all sorts of things as you read the entirety of the Gospels. And this guy just says, you're Lord and you can do this. And Jesus says, that's great. That is great faith. And I think the, the more that we hear about Jesus, if you, if you want to, to, again, not to quantify faith, but if you feel that you want faith to, to really rise up in you and to be great faith and faith that does affect others around you, Romans 10 says that faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. And I think the more we look at Jesus, that's why we're in Luke and we're taking our time. The more we look at Jesus the more we understand who God is, then the greater our faith will be because we'll have a fuller revelation of him and we place our faith entirely in him. And what what does faith do? You know, just learning from this first story in, in Luke 7, faith brings Jesus into a situation. Now, he may well have consulted medics. He probably has done because the guy at this point is at the point of death. I'm sure he's, he's, he's used natural common sense as well and and tried to help the fella but instead of just letting it go his exercise of faith brings jesus into the situation and that is what will happen in our lives as we exhibit faith we will bring jesus into the situations of our lives and the second thing that faith will do is see jesus transform the lives of others exercising faith does not just transform my life If I am a man living by faith, who has believed, trusted, and is trying to live faithfully a life of following Jesus, then it's the lives of others that will be affected, not just my life. A guy, a a pastor from, no, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, The questions then that, that come from that is, first of all, are you trusting in who Jesus is? or Are you trusting in who you are? The Jews went trying to get Jesus to respond on the basis of who the centurion was. 
the centurion went trying to get Jesus to respond on the basis of who Jesus was. Faith must always be in him and never in what we have done. And if you've never experienced that, just be aware of it. Maybe it's as the years go by, it becomes more of a trap that you can fall into where you think, goodness me, God, haven't I done well? (laughs) I've never done this and I've never done that. I've never done that. and I've done this, this and this. So come on, (laughs) show up and do your thing. No, that's a very dangerous way to think. So am I trusted in who Jesus is or am I trusted in who I am? And do I have faith that Jesus can transform the lives of those around me? Not just my life, but the lives of those around me. David Soames is a pastor in Vancouver. And he says, Great faith always takes on spiritual unbelief and addresses those things that could be different because of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. Great faith always takes on spiritual unbelief and addresses those things that could be different because of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. In your life, in your family, in your workplace, in your community, this town, what are the things that could be different because of who Jesus is? Great faith will take those things on. Great faith will take a step forward on the basis of who Jesus is. Things that could be different. What are the things out there that could be different? That God looks at and that we look at and in the, in the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit we look at and say that's not right. Great faith takes those things on because of who Jesus is. Not because of who we are. So that's the first little story. I think we have time to do the second one. It's a bit shorter. We're going from Capernaum in verses 1 to 10. We're going to Nain in verses 11 to 17. Nain is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. But it might be. (laughs) Because there's there's a root Hebrew word in the background that just might be at play here. So I'll point that out later. But we're in Nain. None of the other gospel writers record this. This is only recorded by Luke. Here we go. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the beer, not that type of beer, that's the sort of the word for the plank or whatever the body was carried on. Touched the beer, they were carrying him on and the bearers stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. The news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Here you have a picture of complete hopelessness. So the the centurion, rich guy, had it all. Comfortable house, slaves, influence. He was just, he was sorted. 
you then just, within a few verses, you swing to verse 11 and you have got a picture of absolute hopelessness. This woman has no husband. And also she has now got no son. Her only son has died. And this is a man-centered world. And a widow without a son was in a very, very dangerous position. She probably didn't even have land rights in that any land that was owned by her late husband or that was looked after by her son who has now died, legally that anyone probably could have took that land off her because she was a woman and that's the way the society was structured. She is very vulnerable, she is very fearful and she's completely hopeless. This is bleak, really bleak. I don't know if you're aware of any bleak situations or if you're in a bleak situation, but this is grim. For her, it doesn't get any worse. Her hope for the future was her son, and now he has gone. The Old Testament views widows and orphans as vulnerable, helpless people. And James in the New Testament writes about how true religion, proper following of Jesus, will show love towards widows and orphans. There's echoes here of a lady in the Old Testament whose husband died and then her two sons also died. And her name is Naomi. And in this culture, somebody would have been buried the same day that they died. You did not have the sort of, you know, what we do where where there's a few days between a death and a funeral. He probably had died that morning We don't know the circumstances. We don't know whether it had been a tragic accident. Whatever it was, it was tragic, but we don't know if he'd been sick or if an accident had occurred. But he would have died that day and he would have been buried the same day. No time to sort of grieve, no time to get family around you. Just all of a sudden, within a matter of hours, your life is completely turned upside down. And this procession, is carrying the the dead body, not in a coffin, but on a couple of planks of wood, wrapped up in a cloth out of the the city. And there's no doubt about this, that Luke wants you to think about another time whenever the son of a widow is being taken outside of a city to be buried, which we'll get to probably in about 20 years' time at the rate we're going. But Luke has that in mind and, he, and, he's, and he's just stoking up that imagery as he describes what's going on here. And I want you to just really get into the story. Maybe you're walking with the widow behind her and as you're walking out, you know the, the chat that sometimes goes on at these things and you're, you can't believe that you are once again walking with her to the family grave plot because... Maybe just a short time before you went to bury her husband there. And now you're going again to bury her son. And she's hopeless. And if, you, if, you, if you're watching the scene now sort of pan out and, 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 and move back and you can see the, the crowd from above following this lady out of the city and the grief and the wailing and all the sort of professional mourners that were there and all the, the crying, the hopelessness, this crowd united by death moving towards the the edge of the village, towards the gates of the village to go outside. But then another crowd comes. And again, I think Luke is, is trying to get us to see these two crowds. There's that first crowd with the woman, united by death and grief. 
But then a second crowd is coming towards the town. And the second crowd is a crowd that is united by life. This is the crowd that has started to follow Jesus, his disciples, and then a larger group of people. And as these two crowds meet, I'm back to the old river meets the sea picture. Where in Ezekiel 47, the river of life flows into the sea of death. The Dead Sea, where nothing lives. But instead of the river taking on the character of the Dead Sea, the river of life flows into the Dead Sea and brings life. You've got this interface between these two bodies of water coming together. And life flows into death and brings life. That's what's happening here. A crowd united by death, a crowd united by life, moving towards each other. At the front of the crowd united by death is this body up on the plank being carried with this woman heartbroken and hopeless behind it. At the front of the crowd united by life is Jesus. And the two of them are, are, are moving together. And as he comes to her, it says there, his heart went out to her. That's a fantastic word in Greek, splangnizomai. <laughs> Love it. It comes from the word splangnon, which means your guts. Have you ever been upset and you can feel a pain in here? I don't know what it is biologically. I'm sure you, somebody could describe it to us. But you, you feel a pain right down in here as tears well up, as something that is just really disturbed and upset you happens and you feel it in your gut. This is what you would probably say. Not quite biologically correct, I'm sure, but that's what Jesus feels. That's what he feels. Now get that. He doesn't just see her and say to himself, well, I should do something about this because I can, because I'm God. He feels it. He physically took on flesh in the incarnation and he, that thing that we've all felt, he feels it. In his gut, compassion. The only person in the Old Testament that you ever read feeling compassion is God. And that's why the New Testament writers make such a fuss about Jesus being compassionate. He feels it in his gut. He looks at her and he can't ignore it. I love people like that. I love people who just get involved because they can't ignore it. They feel the pain. They feel the hurt. They feel compassion. And they maybe think, you know what, I'm, I'm a bit tired or I'm a bit busy. Or, you know, what? there's other things that are important. But they respond to that gut feeling. There is humanity broken and in pain. And I'm going to go. And Jesus does that. And he goes over to her and he, he, he touches, he touches the, 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 the planks that they're carrying the body on. He says to the woman, don't cry which seems strange, but he knew what he was going to do. And he touches the planks that the, the, the body's on. And by doing that, he's unclean. In, in Numbers 19.11, to touch a corpse or the, the planks that are carrying the corpse renders you unclean. Jesus goes up and he puts his hand on and he becomes, according to the Old Testament law, unclean. Of course, Jesus cannot become unclean. And when the river meets the sea, life infects death, not the other way around. And as Jesus touches that, he is, he is not worried about the fact that he is supposedly becoming unclean. He gets right in and he gets right involved. We know from the first story he could have just walked by and snapped his fingers and the guy gets up. 
He could have just said a word. He didn't have to go into the city. He could have just passed by and then said a word. But he chose to get involved, church. He chose to go right up to the woman. I don't think he shouted, don't cry to the entire crowd. I think he went up and just whispered it in her ear. Don't cry. It'll be all right. Gets right in there, right beside her. He touches death. He gets involved. Do we get involved in the mess? Do we go and sit in the unclean places? He gets right in there, gets involved, identifies with the situation. And is there something that you're dreading? The way this woman's heart would have been filled with dread at what she was having to do and the future that lay on the other side of this funeral. Is there something you're dreading this week, this month, or in life, is there just a general sense of dread and fear at something that might happen? Because Jesus comes right into that, feels it in his gut, comes right into it, whispers, don't cry, and he touches the unclean, touches that dread-filled situation, and he just says to the guy, get up. And for one that's going to be resurrected from the dead, the words get up are big, big words. Get up. One of the things that we believe as Christians, which is something that it's hard for people outside our faith to understand, is that there will be a future day when Jesus will once again say, get up, and there will be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of the dead. Some unto life, and some on to judgment. But that's what the scriptures teach us. He will, this, on this occasion it was probably quiet, just put his hand and just get up. But on, the, on the, the future occasion, it'll be like a trumpet blast. Get up, and the dead will rise. And Jesus is demonstrating here that he can turn the tables on death, and he's also demonstrating, I think it's wonderful here, there's no faith here apart from his own. I love it. First story, the centurion's faith, so important. This story, nobody's showing any faith. All you've got is the compassion of God. <laughs> Has God ever done something for you and you're like, do you know what? I didn't, I didn't even have the faith to pray for that. But you're so good. <laughs> you're so faithful. You're so compassionate and gracious. You have poured out so much more abundantly above what I would have dared to ask or think. Nobody exercises faith. It's just the compassion of God. We have this skewed idea sometimes in society that God is angry God up in the skies with a length of blue pipe ready to start beating everybody that does anything wrong. And here we have God And again, some people have the idea, and God loves faith, and he responds to faith. Faith pleases him. But it does not mean that faith is some secret special trigger that gets God to do what we want. On this occasion, God just wells up in compassion. He just does it, because that's who he is. He just does it because he's kind and because he's good. And I wonder in the background here is, I'll just hang hang this in the air and, and leave it with you. But as I was thinking about this this morning, I didn't read this in any of the commentaries, but I thought about Uzzah in the Old Testament. Uzzah's the guy who was walking beside the Ark of the Covenant as, as David was bringing it back to Jerusalem. And the Ark, 
you know, symbolized the presence of God. And Uzzah is walking by beside it. There's this great celebration going on. And the, the, the cart sort of rocks because the oxen stumble a little bit that are pushing it. And he reaches out and he puts his hand on it to steady it and he drops dead. And the whole celebration turns into this mass of confusion and, and grief. And sometimes in the Old Testament, there are types of what will happen when Jesus comes. And sometimes there are anti-types, which are sort of like a reversal. And as I thought about that this morning, I thought about how, how what Jesus did is the opposite. Uzzah touched the presence of God and he died and this celebration turned into a, a funeral. Jesus walks up to this dead body. The presence of God then touches the dead body the, the, the dead body comes to life and the funeral turns into celebration. It's like a complete reversal. It's class. Don't know if that's meant to be there or whether my imagination's just going off on one. And as we close here, there are echoes of Elijah. Jesus gave him back to his mother. In 1 Kings, Elijah did exactly the same thing. He raised a son from the dead and he gave him back to his mother. And Elisha also raised a child from the dead. And it's very clear the way Luke presents this, that he wants us to think about these things in the background. Elijah did it for a lady who lived in Zarephath. And then Elisha did it for a lady who lived in a place called Shunem. Now, Shunem, say Nim. Say Capernaum. And then Nain. They all come from the same Hebrew word, Nain comes from the Hebrew word name, Capernaum, Shunem, Naomi. There's definitely something that you Bible boffins can go home and think about over your coffee this afternoon in terms of these names of where all these things happened. And the response of the crowd was to be filled with awe, declare that Jesus was a prophet and that God had visited his people. God's visiting his people is not to have a cup of tea and a wee bun and a chat and then go home. When God visits his people, it is to redeem them. Visiting his people is like the Exodus language where God sees. Lovely verse, I think it's in Exodus 6 maybe, um, where God sees, no, it's in Exodus 3. He sees the wailing. He sees the people who are under Pharaoh's oppression and he has compassion and he comes down to rescue them. That's what it means for God to visit. And Luke starts with Zechariah singing about God visiting and redeeming his people. And Luke ends with Jesus saying to the people, the Jews and the temple and the religious system, you didn't know the time of your visitation. God just visited you and you didn't see it. The people have declared that God has visited them and they've made a judgment and every one of us have to do the same thing. Seeing who God is, they've seen that Jesus is a great prophet. They've seen the Elijah-Elisha connection and they have to then make a decision who he is. And it is the same for all of us. When Jesus is revealed to us, we have to decide. Is he who he says he is? Do I put my faith in him or is he not? So in Capernaum, we have the authority of Jesus. And in Nain, we have the compassion of Jesus. I love the fact that the first one shows how he is amazed by our faith, that he is who he says he is. And I love the fact that the second one shows that he's just overflowing with compassion and grace and doesn't need faith in order to pour out blessing on broken humanity. (coughs) So that's Luke 7, or the first part of it. Yeah?
He's good. Let's pray and let's sing. Jesus, we love you. We love you. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just take away all wrong ideas of who he is. He is Lord, Lord of heaven and earth. And I pray, Father, for everyone whose heart is filled with dread over anything, whether it's an ongoing situation that has been rumbling on for years, whether it's something that's coming up this week or something that might happen, but they don't even know if it's going to happen, but it creates fear and dread. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now that they would see King Jesus walking into that, coming alongside it, whispering, don't cry, don't fear, and then bringing his life into that dread-filled situation to transform it. We love you, Lord. We love all these little glimpses we get of your character and your goodness. I pray, Holy Spirit, now as we praise you, as we lift up the name of Jesus, as we magnify our God, that you would minister, that you would touch our hearts, that you would speak to us and bring further encouragement in Jesus' name. Amen.